Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-titles 80 expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And I'm Nico, and we hope you survive the experience. And by hope you survive the experience, we mean we hope you keep enjoying it, because finally, finally, after so long, even though we're going to have a couple of tough ones today, I just feel like the X-Men are where I want it, and I'm in a good mood about it. And it seems like the Dark Phoenix event over in HTML is ending, and it's just like, it's a good time to love the X-Men, right? Well, comic book-wise, at least. Yeah, although there were some doozies this issue. I mean, it's really weird, because when we started this whole project, I really thought that we were just trying to sit down and read some X-Men comic books and have a good time. But more and more, we've become increasingly aware of the way these books have been aged by content and intent. I know that I've long said you really need to consider where you start a comic book run because while it's exciting to read everything, the levels of problematic material do become overwhelming at times. We've had so many issues where women are little more than placeholders, and I feel like we're finally reaching somewhere where that's not the case. We still had some issues along the way, but I don't know. It's been interesting watching the X-Men kind of wake up to their own problematic ways. Yeah, I would agree with that, I think. Um, We're at a point where we recognize the strength of the women and they're not they're not subjected to sexy lamppost syndrome where you can just replace them with a sexy lamppost and they still do the exact same thing. They pass Bechdel tests where they're not constantly just talking about men. You know, they're multidimensional characters that aren't held back by the gender that they were assigned. And so it's really nice to see the growth in the women of the X-Verse and how they're shaping it. I really like that you touched on that because personally, I can't think of a time where Stevie Hunter and Aurora have discussed a man. I can't think of a point at which either one of them kind of tried to push an overly mature, almost sexual relationship on Kitty with Peter. In fact, I've noticed that other than some good-natured ribbing from Kurt and Logan, the X-Men are treating Kitty like an adult. They're not feminizing her. They're maybe a little protective, but they're not infantilizing her either. Maybe even a little bit considering some comments he's made in the last few years. I have to wonder if this sudden clarity of story and um, and this sudden avoidance of problematic behaviors can be chalked up to John Byrne leaving, Chris Claremont being given more control, and a brilliant editor in Wheezy Simonson coming in and helping keep this ship moving forward. Something I still think about is John Bird's quote of what his original idea of Kitty Pride being just the average normal girl not being special in any way. And I think about that and I think about, well, if John Byrne was still here and that's the vision he was able to get for Kitty, would that still be interesting? Would Kitty be this 
character that everyone is falling in love with that is shaping the X-Men as we know it because does a normal girl really fit in with the X-Men? I love that question because we're seeing it answered in all sorts of ways. We see it answered in the form of the X-Men's human companions like Moira and Stevie. We see it answered in the form of Banshee. Not to be mean, but Banshee's a pretty unspecial X-Man, and that's why he disappears. And even our precious Dazzler, who we just went gaga over the moon, crazy banana Kesha pants over in our first Dazzler episode with Dylan Warpath, who just killed it on his first A-Story episode. I still just, no, they don't. And it's funny because John Byrne is such a unique writer, and the ways in which John Byrne crafts his narratives are so special. That's why when John Byrne leaves Alpha Flight, it's really hard to read Alpha Flight. It's kind of painful. So, yeah, I just can't wait to see the X-Men keep growing and keep transforming. It's weird to me that we're still at an X-Men that's more male than female. So we're in for quite a change to this roster in the very near future. In X-Men 150, Chris Claremont, along with legendary X-Men penciler Dave Cockrum and a slew of other artists, take on the X-Men vs. Magneto in the first major epic battle that the all-new, all-different X-Men see against the Master of Magnetism. From there, we move to Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 5, which really reads more like a Fantastic Four annual than anything. Not that I'm complaining, it was great to see the Fantastic Four again, especially after having a little bit of time with Doom. And that story is written by Chris Claremont with art by Brent Anderson. Before turning our attention to what I just, I mean, I'm like, it's like, and you know, I just, because it's like we just, it's just, finally we are out from under classic X-Men's thumb, but we have moved thoroughly to our next anthology title that will be berating us for quite a while. Marvel Fanfare will be running from one to number 60. Funny enough, we already have talked about the final issue of Marvel Fanfare which finished off one of the stories from X-Men Classics somehow. But we're going to spend some time in Marvel fanfare before moving over eventually to Marvel Comics Presents because the X-Men just can't stay in their own goddamn books. However, this episode, we're going to be discussing Marvel fanfare 1 through 4, as well as number 7. 1 through 4 were written by Chris Claremont, with art by Michael Golden for the first two, Dave Cockrum for the third one, before turning to now-legendary, incredible, amazing, breathtaking phenomenal X-Men penciler, Paul Smith, who does some of my all-time favorite work on the X-Men, and it's so great to get to see him now. And then we're going to be covering kind of one of the otter oddballs that we're going to be seeing for a while. We're going to be taking a look at Marvel Fanfare number 7, which has a script by Stephen Grant with pencils by Joe Barney, in which the Blob and Eunice have an oddly, uh, we're going to go with strong relationship uh, versus the Hulk, kind of sort of it's i don't know it's really weird it's definitely a black tom juggernaut story (laughs) but enough about the material we're going to be covering and let's get down to it uncanny x-men 150 is one of those legendary doozies 150 175 200 225 250 275 they're all pretty incredible claremont loves his hallmarks While 125 was amazing in that it was part of the Proteus saga, 125 wasn't a celebration of the number that it was. 150 feels like a big deal. Jonah, I think this is the longest issue of X-Men you've read that isn't a giant size or an annual. What did you think about Uncanny 150? 
there was so much going on. There were so many questions. There was so much character development that's throwing at us in this one thing. And it's a giant whirlwind of emotions. Speaking of whirlwinds, uh, some characters go on probably one of the fastest roller coasters of emotions and self-preservation. But that's not even the proper word I can think of that would describe what certain characters go through about their character and their own thoughts. It's weird and it's not even just exclusive to the x-men themselves magneto goes through so many emotions and different forms of characterization this is one issue it's jam-packed but this is a celebration of reaching 150 issues of a title that's pretty impressive because i've heard plenty of tale of stories that get cut you know the x-men wasn't good from 1 to 66 but they definitely got there and it's amazing because I find so much of Chris Claremont's best work to be work that's his stuff. Arcade, Proteus, so many of the characters he's going to go on to create. Claremont works best with his own toys, but Magneto is the classic toy he settles into the most beautifully. Claremont's Magneto is a nuanced, complex character, and he's able to keep the character terribly complicated by keeping his motivations simple. He is obsessed with the idea of the preservation of his species. It's actually a really simple motivation, and it's mirrored so powerfully in his time as a young Jewish man in a concentration camp. Claremont's understanding of Magneto is about to go on a wild transformation. In fact, my biggest problem with this issue has nothing to do with Magneto. It's not even really Cyclops. It's that Cyclops doesn't belong being the hero of this narrative. I think that Cyclops and Lee Forrester's slow inclusion over the last several issues was a really great way to get us there, but I didn't need Cyclops in this title again. It feels like he just left and he's already friggin' back. And this is the first time that despite the overabundance of characters, I feel like everybody got their fair shake. I feel Kitty was the lead character, Aurora was the lead character, Magneto was somehow the lead character, Scott was the lead character, there was still room for Peter and Kurt. And I felt like Logan still had time to shine. There were a lot of X-Men. It really helped that the goddamn thing had like 48 pages. Yeah. If this was trying to be condensed down into a standard issue of 22 pages, I think it can be done. But then we might complain that it would have been too rushed and there's too much going on. You're trying to force too much characterization. So the 40 pages really did help them out. And this is a time where I don't feel... A page was wasted or they're trying to buy time. I think every page is filled nicely and it's very cohesive and flows nicely as opposed to some of the annuals or some of the giant sizes that we've read where it felt like they were buying time. This issue goes through a lot and I think it focuses on the characters it needs to focus on, but I agree. I don't think Scott needs to be back yet, you know? Sure, he misses the X-Men, that's his family, but he still... I don't. I wouldn't buy it that Scott is over everything already and that he's ready to come back and he's ready to join the team and the emotional uh, turmoil, roller coaster, whatever you want to call it, that is being on the team again without Gene. You know, he doesn't know the team without Gene pretty much because Gene really didn't leave, even when she claimed she did, but it's... I don't I don't think he should be, he would be ready. He is yes our resident sad boy, but even then are you telling me he's really ignoring his emotions that much? 
there is one thing for which I am very grateful that Scott Summers is here and pretending he's over everything that's happened to him. Leaf Forrester. I love her, and I love her humanity. It's so important that she's kind of like, yeah, I'm really overwhelmed by all of this. This is crazy. We get an excellent bit of personal characterization, kind of like an aside for her on page 13, which is shortly before Logan decides he's just going to kill this little white woman. I kind of thought that was... Like, I was kind of like, what the fuck? He's just trying to kill. Like, it's just a little too much. But the more I thought about it, everything had been so on top of one another. The X-Men went to space. Then there was the Magneto attack in the one teens. Then the Savage Land. Then Japan. Then Muir Island. Then Phoenix Saga. Then Days of Future Past. Then the Doctor Doom and Arcade kidnapping. Logan is absolutely at his wit's end. It's really great that Scott kind of shows a sense of humor here. At the end of the day, I find Storm to be a better tactical leader. Scott provides something and i do think it's more than just lee as a matter of fact without lee's humanity without lee being that binding agent that burn was trying to make kitty into this oh she's the normal girl we didn't need a normal girl we needed a normal woman and i really think lee provides an important contrast because as jonah pointed out the x-men go on quite the fucking roller coaster and I know I'm jumping way ahead, but once the X-Men formulate their plan and they figure out that they're going to defeat Magneto, who's temporarily disabled all of their powers, the plan maybe goes a little too well and a little too easily for the most part. But we need to talk about Storm considering murdering Magneto for two pages because that's like the craziest shit ever. Also, hot Magneto that I just wanted to go, go lay in bed with him. We're at, I guess we're at the point where everyone in the X-Men is just sexy. Even their villains are sexy, which is fine. Great. Give us more of that beefcake. That, that's great. Something that I alluded to in what Nika was just talking about, Storm goes through this emotional roller coaster of her sneaking into Magneto's bedroom and seeing him sleeping, and she's like, huh, it's almost like he's us, or we could have been him. Should I kill him now? Everything would be over, but I swore not to kill again. But it's right there, and he's so innocent, and I can do it. The knife is there. But it, this, to me, just, just felt like it came out of nowhere, and I don't think it was the time to have Storm go through this identity crisis and this moral crisis of what's the right thing to do? Is it right to kill a villain, or is it fine to stick to your ethics of never killing again? I, It's not the place for this. Storm can have this, and you can have this be part of her character arc and growth, but now is not the time. I know what you're talking about, and I even see where you're coming from, because I think the last time we really dealt with Storm's obsession with the mortality of even her villains was the 120s right after the Garak story. And then we had a few flashes of Storm trying to figure out how to handle the intensity of the greatness of her power, especially during the arcade Doctor Doom battle, but we haven't really had focus on Storm questioning violence as a means of effective fighting in a long time. Ultimately, she decides she can't kill him, and Magneto does the coolest ever I'm going to, like, magnetically shift the balls of my costume onto myself moment he's, like, ever fucking had. I mean, I wish he still didn't have the terrible Emperor Palpatine hair at this point, but they'll get that under control soon. Yeah, for the most part, it's pretty... It's pretty. It's a pretty cool fight, I will say that. You know, the X-Men fighting with their wits for the first part of it until to where they're able to destroy the control room so that the X-Men can fight on a level playing field. And for the most part, they fight as a cohesive team, but Magneto is just a really strong character now. He's a super, super, super strong villain. So even at their fighting at their smartest and their hardest, they're not really able to overcome him. It's not until he realizes that he might kill a child 
Magneto's confrontation of Kitty Pride for the first time is such an important moment that completely changes the direction and altitude of the X-Men forever. 150 is the turning point for Magneto, and Kitty Pride is that turning point. I'm really excited. I don't want to talk too much more about what follows, but when Magneto realizes that his actions might have resulted directly in the death of a child, forget the fact that many people might die, but when he literally sees one child in front of him, a mutant child, that he could be responsible for the death of, it makes him realize something. It, it goes to that whole argument of frequently people say, oh, that person committed murder, give them the electric chair. Oh, that person killed 55 people, they're mentally insane, lock them up. And it's that sort of way that we can't process things and we make up reasons that, oh, it's this or that. Magneto can't really process if he were to kill millions of people. But this one young mutant girl in front of him, yeah, that's too much. That really is too much. This one young Jewish mutant girl. Not that uh, Kitty's faith plays a role into that, but I think it's really interesting. And that's definitely going to come up in X-Men 200. So everybody hang on till we get to that giant monolith of an issue. The Uncanny X-Men have this horrible habit of these weird, almost unrelated annuals following these massive events. You kind of can't blame them. It's just how it goes. Immediately following the Dark Phoenix saga, we had the story all about Kurt and his family and his love of incest. And this annual is just like, it's just like it starts on like seven pages of the Fantastic Four and this one Shi'ar lady. And I'm just like, what the fuck am I reading? Uh, yeah, this was this was pretty much a Fantastic Four issue, though. They go down very fast, much like the X-Men usually do. Something I said to Nico while I was reading this, and we were discussing it before recording, is that this issue has too much of a problem with it being too easy. If you thought the X-Men's plan in 150 went without any hitch, the plan in this annual really goes off without a hitch, and you think there's at one point where... Sue Storm messes everything up, but really, she just gets everything started and everything just falls perfectly into place. So I don't know why they thought they were in any danger whatsoever. And Joji, it has your favorite character, Archon. Okay. Now here's another problem I have with this. And the last time that we saw Archon, that now he's a friend and whatever, sure, that's fine. But this goes just goes back to my problem with Storm having too much time in Archon's world before anybody else, even though there wasn't much of a time difference between Storm going and then everybody else going in Uncanny X-Men Annual number three, she now has friends and people she met. No, there was no time for any of this. And it's another one of those, it has to work in chapters because it's so long and clunky kind of things. One of the things the X-Men love for annuals is bringing in other people. And I get it. I do. An annual is an exciting time to experiment with form and plotting and pacing. But there is something very... This could have been the interim X-Men. I didn't need this to be the Badoon. This could have taken place in Muir Island. And it could have been Polaris, Havoc, Banshee, and Moira, Jamie. People that we already care about. Not that I don't care about the Fantastic Four. But once again, knowing that this is right on the heels of John Byrne leaving the X-Men to take over the Fantastic Four... It kind of feels pointed. This is the second time Claremont is 
using Fantastic Four characters very near John Byrne departing for Fantastic Four. And it's not that Claremont doesn't really have their voices down, but they're so generic. There's very few moments I love in this issue. I do love when it seems like Sue Storm has messed everything up and Storm is like, no, I get it. You just like, you gotta go save your husband because he's like in distress. And Sue is like, yeah, that's pretty much it. Let's go save my husband. And Storm is like, you got it. Like, it's just so fucking chill. Yeah, and that's the, I guess maybe that adds to what I don't like about this issue is that the tone seems very relaxed and it's, they're not in danger. I mean, hell, Kurt gets hurt at one point and they're like, is he going to make it? He was severely hurt and he, it took, his teleport took a lot out of him just to get us safe and we were knocked out of it, but he's not blah, blah, blah. And he was healed, quote unquote, off screen, off panel, and he was completely fine. So there was literally never any danger for anybody at all. For real, the discussion of Nightcrawler's injury lasts like not even two full pages. However, there is one moment I love in this issue that I feel like we can't avoid discussing. Thing and Colossus are arm wrestling, and someone walks in and Colossus is like, You! And Kitty's like, Hey, what's up? I'm dressed like a native. And Colossus is like, Metal boner! And Thing is like, Ah ha ha! Loser! And I'm kind of like, I mean, I appreciate that the thing isn't like, yes, I'm very turned on by this 14-year-old girl as well. But it's a, it's cute and weird and makes me feel a way. Yes, this is also Kitty coming off designing her second costume, personally, to which I pointed this to uh, our other co-host, Kevo, and saying, do you see what this 13-year-old child is trying to wear? She has no fashion sense. And then a panel later, she said, none of you have fashion sense. And I just wanted to go, sweetie, sweetie, no, it's not them, it's you. You're the problem. Speaking of you're the problem, I don't think we can put this off anymore. Let's let's just, let's just do it. Marvel Marvel fanfare one two three four seven because that's that's how you count. So one two three four seven. Jeez. Okay. Um, I want to start with one two three four or supposedly one story. I I don't know how, but Claremont weaves this intricate tale of um a woman Tanya. Tanya comes forward and is like, Warren Worthington, you have to help me with all your money and your wings. And he's like, how can I help you? And she's like, take me to the Savage Land so I can get back my reptile boyfriend, Carl. And Angel's like, why? And Candy's like, oh, do it. And Tanya's like, yeah, do it. And Angel's like, okay, Dave. And so then they get Peter Parker for no reason. And they go to the Savage Land where they hang out with Kazar, the man without a loincloth. And the three of them run around, hanging out with Zabu. You literally just looked down at my crotch. That was amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then they fight with Zabu. Uh, well, alongside Zabu. And they fight against Sauron and the One Ring. And Brainchild, who I think might be offensive at this point. And a bunch of mutates who sometimes get called mutants. And Angel gets turned into a chicken. And Spider-Man gets turned into a spider. And then everyone's really surprised when Kazar shows back up and the X-Men really don't even belong in this story. I, I, I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. There was nothing good about this issue. If Nico couldn't sell you on it, on his almost pretty accurate and pretty faithful to the plot of what these four issues were, then I don't think anything can because these were not good to read. These were not interesting. I don't know what Chris was thinking. But there was nothing going on, and it was just one day's ex machina after another of who gets saved. We get 
grotesque art of what Warren and Spider-Man look like in their future evolved forms. But I will say this pretty interesting characterization. Part of this plot is that Peter, even in his monstrous form and wanting to kill and fight those urges, is actually able to fight those urges enough to basically help save the day. He still has his humanity in them. But while Warren is in his chicken form, he not once holds himself back. Yeah, no, he goes on like a clucking murder spree. It's really weird. And part of why I'm really glad you said what you said is because I want to talk about how this is kind of Claremont being asked to do a best of. Now, Marvel Fanfare was meant to be this prestige premiere kind of book. It came on a really nice cardstock, and they were really long issues. They had multiple stories in them each. There was even kind of like meta editorial inside of them where they would draw in the writer and artists having conversations about making the book. But good gosh, this is this is tough. We get Angel having a lot of money, and that's really what he adds. Spider-Man is the adventurer who finds himself trapped in every story. We get to see the Savage Land, which is a major focal point of the Marvel Universe. We get Kazar. We get references to things that happened in the 60s before the X-Men even show up. And then each one of the X-Men kind of does the most X-Men-y thing they could possibly do. Kurt has his humanity nearly ripped away from him. Storm has to fight all of the elements. Angel has to find the strength to overcome and save his team. This was really a lot of things we'd already seen from these characters. The art was gorgeous. I love Michael Golden, Dave Cockrum, and Paul Smith. Claremont does a fine job writing the story, but, and I'm going to make this comment every time he comes up for the next 40 years, there's something I don't like about Brainchild. There is something about a mutated pygmy man that is like, it's it's just not appropriate at this point. I don't know that it was ever appropriate, but I think they hid behind the illusion of superheroics as a distraction from the fact that what they were doing was problematic. We just talked about how many ways in which this book strongly and smartly got away from being problematic, and I do notice that this is not in the Uncanny X-Men run proper, though it has been collected in the Omnibus edition. At the end of the day, I don't feel like we covered any new ground that wasn't already covered in either of our trips to the Savage Land. I appreciated getting Sauron cured at the end, but I'm pretty sure it's not a spoiler if I tell you this isn't the end of Sauron, and we are going to see him come back up at some point. In a lot of ways, this echoed the living Pharaoh, and we used a foreign location as a method of magic and bordered on some really uncomfortable topics. I don't really feel I got anything out of this four-part. Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head. This issue taking place in the Savage Land doesn't add anything. Nothing new happens. It's actually basically the same story as the first time we on this project have seen the X-Men go to the Savage Land when they fought Magneto in the volcano and they ended up there. It's the exact same story down to these are basically remnants of Garak and his priestess follower and their team trying to overtake and conquer the Savage Lands. It's the exact same plot. Nothing new happens. Also, I want to point out one moment when Charles is talking about curing Carl, and at one point he tells Tanya that he might die and that he might stay like this forever and he can't do anything. And he's like, oh, no, just kidding. I was actually able to cure him. Yeah, it's another one of those, ah, it might be true. Never mind. There's way too many of those this episode. And I feel like there's been nothing to talk about this episode. I feel like this has been like a lot of giant stories devoid of any plot. So let's just do it. Once there was a man named Blob and he had a boyfriend named Eunice and they ran into a power top 
nicknamed Hulk, who wanted to dom them both. Now, I think I have the best way to describe this. This is probably just a shoujin anime. This is the best way I can describe it, because Hulk is the main character, who is super strong, and then he fights someone who's also super strong and slightly stronger than him at first. But then Hulk, and the power of Hulk, believes in Hulk, and he's able to basically defeat the Blob. But then... Blob's friend and boyfriend Eunice comes, and Hulk's still able to smash him through the power of Hulk! It's basically what happens is that it seems slightly like the villains will have the upper hand, and then Hulk just bees the Hulk. Nothing really happens in this entire issue. Also, while the Blob and Eunice aren't the best people at this circus that they've overtaken and basically are being mean to people at, Hulk is eating all their food. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought of it until you put it that way, but now I'm going to tell you what won't stop running through my head. You can't stop me, Hulky boy! Hulk play, Dark Hulk magician! Dark Hulk magician beat Blobasus! And that's all I'm seeing, and it's like, the Millennium Eunice, Hulky boy, this is... We've really lost the plot. I, I, I should edit this, but I won't. You're welcome, Joey. I... <laughs> Joey Wheeler! So, I'm really glad that we just exposed our Yu-Gi-Oh fandom on this show that just happened and no really we're making a lot of jokes but X-Men villains seem to pair off male male and have a very Scott Stapp Kid Rock making a sex tape in a motel kind of vibe to them and I don't know what to do with that no they this you called this Black Tom and Juggernaut story it basically is you can replace the two and this just being Black Tom not being able to control his sonar powers, pushing people away, and it's still Juggernaut being Juggernaut. Nothing would actually change, and we consider them boyfriends, so... Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if maybe it was something like... You could even switch it, and it would still work. Juggernaut can't get his helmet off, and Black Tom's power is somehow strong enough to hold back the Hulk. I see it working. Admittedly, though... This one's not by the X-Universe. This one is actually by a Hulk writer. So it's weird that it's an X-Men Circus of Crime story, which is sort of like an X-Men thing. And it's weird that it's against the Hulk. But, you know, this has a lot of hallmarks of a disposable X-Men story. After the dazzling debut of our new Dazzler series featuring myself, Jonah, and Dylan... We knew we needed to get a little bit more Dazzler here on the network so people could know a little bit more where they could find her. Of course, Matthew Scott came through with an incredible X recommendation that's close to my heart. The creative team on this title was an incredible tour de force of talent, as well as the editorial staff, really genuinely making this one of the best things that Marvel did on either side of it for many years. I love this book. I love everybody who worked on it, and I'm really excited for Matthew to tell you a little bit more about it. Good evening, gentle listeners. Or morning. Or afternoon. Or, you know what? Doesn't matter. Hi! Welcome to another X-Rec. I'm Matthew, and today I'm bringing you something bright and significantly less dour than my last few recommendations. Extreme X-Men issues 1 through 3 of the 2012 run. This is Dazzler's Spotlight series, where she gets to lead an X-Team and hunt down a bunch of evil Xaviers across the multiverse who are going to doom reality. Guys, it's Dazzler getting to lead, and Xavier cast as a villain. What else do I need to say here? Go read it. Okay, fine. If that isn't enough to sell you on it, then there's also Gay Wolverine, with gold claws, and an alternate Dazzler who plays an accordion. How about now? In all seriousness, though, 
The whole series is fun, and the first three issues set up the overall plot in a short but fun arc. Dazzler gets pulled into an alternate and doomed dimension, and gets recruited into a team with a floating head in a jar Xavier, a tiny kid Nightcrawler, the aforementioned gay Wolverine, and Emmeline Frost, who has a pretty fucking sweet trench coat. Not Evil Xavier exposits there are t that there are ten Evil Xaviers across the multiverse, and they need to hunt them down and slay them. Dazzler does the whole X-Men don't kill shtick, of course, but we'll see how long that lasts. The first arc takes place in a pseudo-ancient Greece sort of setting, with a council of evil gods ruling over the world. Said evil gods are all characters we know, with evil god Storm as their leader. Shenanigans and fights ensue, as you would expect, but the twist ending to the arc is surprisingly good. I want to talk about it here, but I'd rather let you all experience it for yourselves. With only three issues, there isn't a whole lot I can or want to say that doesn't spoil, but the story is fun, and it sets up one of my favorite titles in X-Men lore. The whole run is worth a read if you have time, and I'll likely be coming back to this well for another wreck. I'm a sucker for alternate reality stories, and just about every arc hits a different reality, including one I've mentioned in a previous wreck. Actually, the endgame of Extreme X-Men is a crossover between itself, Uncanny X-Force, and the Age of Apocalypse title that was running at the same time. The art does change throughout the overall series, as with almost any other these days, but the art for the first arc is solid, if a bit cheesecakey. But hey, being set in Ancient Greece makes that almost a valid choice. Almost. Anyway, as usual, you can find me on Instagram at uppityLittleHomo, where I'll probably be neglecting to post. I really need to be better about that for my 18 human followers, and however many robot followers I have. I'll be back next time with a whole different kind of reality warping badness. No more mutants, indeed. Hello again, I'm gay geek psychiatrist Dr. Matt Connor, and welcome back to Merry Mutant Mental Health, a segment where we talk a little bit about the mental health issues inspired by some of the X-Men comics Nico and the team are reading on X's for Podcast. This time around, the team covered the story of Magneto sinking the Soviet submarine the Leningrad, and he's doing so much violence against the X-Men that he actually shocks himself into realizing that he has repeated his past from the Holocaust. It's super dark, y'all. But let's take a minute to think about this story from Magneto's perspective. One of Claremont's major contributions to comics was to enrich Magneto from this unreadable, flat, Silver Age jerk into a guy that we don't necessarily agree with in terms of his views on mutant-human relations, but we can understand him, we can appreciate him. So how do we do that? Well, remember a few weeks ago when we talked about mental health inheritance as being, well, yes, it's partly genetic, you inherit the kind of brain that your mom and dad had, but that there's a lot more coming from the lessons that you got when you grew up and the stressors that affected the brain that your genes made. And that's a way that we're going to look at Magneto today, and then we're going to expand it to think about ourselves. So putting ourselves in young Magneto's shoes. The adults in our lives teach us a lot of things, but it's rarely explicit. It's rarely, this is something you should learn. In fact, it's modeling much more. We do what we see, not what we're told. No one told Magneto that Nazis were using violence to control and destroy his people because they hate people who were considered too different. But you know that seeing that gets things into his brain. Messages like, different is bad, people can't be trusted, anger is dangerous, you have to kill before you are killed. Magneto can't unlearn this. He shouldn't have to. It's the Holocaust. It's the truth. He wins every debate about who had it tougher. But that doesn't make him right. See, here's the sequence. He learns a truth. People can hurt those that they don't understand. 
and he automatically generates a rule. People will hurt those they don't understand. And then he automatically generates a behavior pattern. I must use violence to defend against people who will hurt me, aka people who don't understand me, aka people who are different from me. And this is all informed by emotions like terror and anger and a depth of grief I pray none of us can ever experience. So I get it. We all get it. The only one who doesn't get it is Magneto himself. Because when we have our emotions adapt our true experiences into rules and behavior patterns, we usually only see the end result. In this case, I sink Soviet submarines and I kill a bunch of people and I murder some X-Men. And then we retrofit an explanation. They were out to get me. They were going to get me. Magneto, maybe they were. I'm not going to deny his right to defend himself. But the automatic aspect of it is what's wrong. He's not acting on the present situation. He's acting on the old situation of the Holocaust. And he's working new data into this preconceived idea. And he doesn't have the self-awareness to know how he got there. And so that's what wrecks his mind at the end of the story. So how does this apply to us? As far as I know, dear listeners, none of you have sunk a submarine full of people. But I'm willing to bet that you've all made some mistakes. And part of a good psychotherapy treatment involves looking at your current problems, including the mistakes that you make, and seeing how you might have adopted internal rules and justifications to make those problems a normal part of your life, something that you don't check, something that you don't understand, but you act on anyway. It's hard to unlearn stuff from your childhood. You can't. Not really. No one unlearns anything, but you can overwrite it with healthier lessons as an adult. And I am sympathetic about how hard that is as you're trying, but you are still responsible for the actions that you take while you're figuring your stuff out. Let's use a relatively benign example. The guy that I'm dating doesn't text me back in a day, and all I can think is, that's rude. I'm not wrong. It is rude, but I'm also not getting the whole story from him or from myself. Because that line of thinking goes to these cycles of anger and criticism and a flurry of even more texts that, y'all, he's not going to respond to any faster than the ones he already ignored. In all honesty, his phone could be off or he may have other things on his mind. But if I think back a little bit on myself and I say to myself, my self-esteem is a little fragile right now. I know that I grew up being valued for what I meant to other people, but not necessarily for who I was, and when I don't get validation, I'm left with my own thoughts and feelings, and that can be uncomfortable. I'm probably extra sensitive to that this week because I talked to someone from my past, or maybe I'm self-conscious because I don't know and trust this guy yet. But I do get to love myself. I'm pretty great. And I don't like when guys don't text back. I don't have to. But if he's being rude... I'm better off just giving that some distance, planning a decent night for myself, and if he does text back, I can explain this later. And if I make that realization too late, I am responsible for what I did in the meantime. I need to say that I'm sorry. Something like, I wish you had texted back earlier. I like hearing from you, and I think about you a lot, and it bugs me when I don't get word back in a day or two, but I am sorry for saying what I said when I hadn't heard from you, and I hope we can talk more about this. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. But that's part of being an adult. That's part of dealing with your stuff. And y'all, I really hope you get this before you sink a submarine full of people. Okay, let's stop there. And Nico wants me to say where I am on social media. So Instagram, Matthew James Conner, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-A-M-E-S-C-O-N-N-E-R. But I don't think I put anything on there in weeks. Um, Go ahead and try. And I will talk to y'all next time. Thanks.
really I was disappointed with the amount of disposable in this in this episode, but I have a really cool surprise for next episode. I'm I just can't wait. In our next episode of Uncanny, we will be covering the return of Emma Frost as well as Kitty's fairy tale. So, next episode, next episode more than makes up for some of the crap we just put up with. Oh, I'm excited. We get introduced to a cool thing. Kind of. Yes, the thing he wants, he will kind of get, but also not yet. A boy can dream, just like Kitty can have a fairy tale. Well, we're going back to space right afterwards, so just hang on to your space dick. And until then, Jonah, we've had an amazing time listening to X-Men recommendations from all over the Marvel Universe, as well as a reminder of why mental health is just as important as anything. And until we come back to do more of that, although I'm pretty sure you're on some uh, Dazzler or a crossover somewhere before then, where can everybody find you online? If you would like to find me online and reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you on the internet? You can find me making my inclusive, diverse comic book, Kid Riot Comics, over at KidRiotComics.com. You can also find me here on this wonderful, amazing network, making a podcast about pop music in the form of now and again, along with my childhood best friend, Chris, where we discuss the Now That's What I Call Music series. You can check me out with my husband and Jonah's boyfriend, Kevo, over on HTML. That's Husbands Talking More or Less. We've dissected the Marvel Universe. We've dissected the Marvel Fox Universe. And now we are turning our attention to space for my favorite universe of all time. We will be taking a look at Ridley Scott's Alienverse, which is just absolutely far and away my favorite thing ever. You can also check out my music projects over on Action Duo at Facebook. That's Facebook slash Action Duo. And if you want to check me out on Instagram, you can check me out at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, so this was a lot of filler. Next time is no filler. Next time is going to be badass. So until we come back, we'll check you guys out. Signing off.